Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ in memory of my sister Marsha Joyce And this is going to be so cool the author of Heroes Ever Die, Jay Crawford, is here. When the actors who play iconic superheroes, everybody loves superheroes, in a big screen blockbuster start dying on the set, Ken Allen, failed actor and neophyte detective, answers the call after the blame falls on effects expert Ray Ford, Ken's oldest friend. But there's a whole lot more. And are these desks accidental or is someone designing to kill off the superheroes? That is not good. So good morning and welcome to MJ Network. And this is going to Hi, be fun. Hi, thanks for having me. Yep, this is it going is. to be fun. Put, let me put the book on the side. Um, so how did you decide on this storyline? What made you come up with well, that? It's different. Well, my first book um, where I introduced the Ken Allen character was sort of a soft satire of the super spy genre of James Bond movies and that sort of thing. Um, but my heart belongs to comic books and their creators. And um, the creators of comic books, many of them were uh, cheated out of ownership of their creations um, and uh, many of them will work for higher uh, hard-working artists and writers uh, who don't get uh, a piece of the character. You know, they just they just get a monthly paycheck. And uh, these were the stories that really affected me as a child um, and that later led me into reading books. You know, it was a stepping stone. And uh, I think when you sit down to write a book, you should have something to say. And I had something to say about these men and women that we've kind of forgotten about. Well, that that is really good. It's like a tribute to them too, and not everybody appreciates, you know, good writers too. You know what? What gets me the most is that when I read a book, and then I look at after I read the book and after I write the review and put the review out, that some people write such nonsense and. They never read the book. Oh, the book's horrible. I hated it. It wasn't my topic. Then mind your own business and don't say anything. I, I can't stand <laughs> that. That that gets me more irritated. I know that because my last book, Population Zero, a lot of people liked it, and somebody said it's not worth anything, and I didn't answer it because I figured she didn't read it. I don't care. So give us the backstory about Ray and Ken, and why were they such close friends? Sure. Um you know, when you sit down to write your detective character, you want to have something a little different than the detectives that have come before. 
and mm-hmm. I wanted to write an amateur detective, maybe someone who isn't a detective because uh, he's a Sherlock Holmes type, a very sharp detective individual, someone who um, is like a forensic scientist or a profiler, but someone who comes to it from an amateur background and really sort of stumbles his way uh, through the um, through the case. Uh, and uh, I, I have to admit, there's a little bit of Columbo in there, the way that yeah, the Columbo character... Yeah, Columbo was always uh, underestimated. You know, uh, people took him lightly. They didn't understand how sharp he was. And there's a little bit of that in Ken, I think, that people do underestimate mm-hmm. him. So Ken is a failed actor who uh, ended up in the right place at the right time and put in a terrible performance of a very famous character. Um, And he is now sort of notorious for this bad performance. And he eventually becomes a detective at the end of the first book. And Ray Ford was the special effects expert on Ken's movie. And they sort of forged this this friendship. and uh, in the first book, Ken goes to Ray in answers for the case that he's working on. In the first book, he's been framed for murder. And it has something to do with this movie he appeared in in the past. And Ray Ford worked on the movie, so he goes to see him. And they rekindled his friendship, and Ray, being a special effects expert, provides Ken with all these super spy-type gadgets, mm. a bulletproof jacket and smoke grenades and all these things. Uh, and there's a reason why Ken doesn't use a gun, and I, I, we can talk about that a little later. And at the mm. time of the first book, Ray just seems like a genuinely friendly and helpful person who maybe wants to test out his inventions on Ken. But in the second book, we start to find out that Ray may have had a reason to bring Ken close to him, to make Ken feel like he owes Ray something. And it's because someone's out there trying to ruin Ray's life. Yeah, I know. So this was the really cool part. I love superheroes. Well, now I can now I can watch them if I want to. Um, tell us why Ken was on the set of the movie. How did you create those superheroes? And each one had a different capability. How did you decide what they were able to do? Well, sure, you know... Um, when I was growing up, superheroes were not so much cool. You didn't want to be caught in school reading comic books. The other kids would probably not uh, think that was a cool thing to do. And in the last 15 or so years, they've become very mainstream. Well, these Marvel movies are super popular, and now superheroes are all of a sudden cool. That was not my experience growing up. Um... And I wanted to say something about that, the kind of rise of the superhero movie. And, uh, and that meant I would have to make up my own superheroes because we're not looking to get sued here. We can't use any established characters in our mm-hmm. books. Um, but I think superheroes are sort of archetypes. Um, when we think of like a Superman archetype, um, mm-hmm. someone who flies and is very strong and has a strong moral center. And I wanted to have a character like that. Um, or a Batman archetype, someone who gets by on their wits and their gadgets. Um, 
Now, the world of superheroes, there are two main companies. There's DC Comics, and those are Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, sort of the heroes of the 40s. They came out of a pre-World War II era and of the culture of that time. And then there are the Marvel superheroes, and those came out of the 60s, uh, the early and middle 60s, and they, they grew up in a time of counterculture, in a time of the civil rights movement, in the time of um, more disillusionment. Uh, we're talking about characters who were created during the Vietnam War as opposed to characters that were created in the World War II era. And these were two very different feeling types of heroes. And so I, was, I wanted to create those heroes as well, heroes that were made in a, a time of more of a social conscience, if that makes any sense. It does make a lot of sense. You know, I, and I, not too long ago, I taught sixth grade, taught every grade. And um, did they try to hide comic books? Not when I was teaching, but they did bring them into the lunchroom. And they weren't supposed to, but I really didn't care. Because I wasn't there Any, watching them yeah. in the lunchroom. And I said, I said, what is the big deal? Well, they had to have an assignment if it was indoor lunch. And if it wasn't, I said, what's the big deal if they're reading comic books? As long as they're not killing anybody. I taught the toughest kids in the sixth grade the first year. And I said, you're just very lucky they're not, you know, killing you while they're in here. So don't worry about it. Well, you know, it's it's kind of it's almost the opposite because I mean this is a little embarrassing to admit, but I sort of drew my my moral center and my values from comic books. Um, <laughs> at the time that I was reading comic books, they heroes were supposed to behave like heroes. They were supposed to set an example, and you know. I was someone who was looking for that guidance. I was looking for um, role models. And that kind of became one of the messages of this book is that people, how do people choose their role models? And are our role models, as we learn that they're actually real people, are they sort of destined to let us down? Because real people can never live up to the ideal um, mm-hmm. And we see that in a relationship in the book when uh, in the first book, uh, Ken discovers that he fathered a child that he, does, he doesn't know exists. And he meets this, this boy who is now almost 18 years old in, in the course of the first book. In the second book, this character, Dean, shows up at Ken's door because Dean is craving a role mm-hmm. model. He's craving a father figure. And he's hoping to find that in Ken. And a surprising part of the book to me was writing this relationship where Ken is an unprepared father. He's trying to do right by him, uh, but he's also trying to break who Dean has turned Ken into in his mind, which is this mm-hmm. infallible person who's always right and can't make mistakes. And as the reader knows, Ken makes plenty of mistakes. My mom told me if I made a mistake, I was in trouble. I grew up, it's really weird. Um, there was no such thing as making getting less than 100 on a test. If I got 99, I had to write it over. And as far as role mm-hmm. models, it's really weird because you got to pick your own. She picked my friends. 
And my friends are all students like myself, yeah. And my aunt um, told me when I was, she, I don't know how old I was, she brainwashed me and said, you will be an educator like me. And it must have gone through my head. I go, now why would I want to teach kids like you? You, you hate, and she loved it. And I turned out to be just like her, a reading specialist. I don't know why, it just, it just clicked. And I said, when my, I said to my mother, maybe I want to be a lawyer because I have a big mouth and I ask questions. No, you're going to be an educator. <laughs> I, I, you know, I did college in three years, and I did my master's, the first master's in like one, and then I got two more and a couple of more after that, and it's like, it wasn't wasn't that hard. <laughs> but it was okay. I, 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 I know, wouldn't I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change anything. I loved every minute of it. Reading is the door to that. You know, I think a lot of us have yeah. in schools because we we read we read so well, and I do believe in a way that. I do think that life imitates art. I think we turn to fiction for mm-hmm. who we emulate, who we think is cool, and who we yeah. want to be like, you know. Um, at least I did. I, I, you know, she just told me what to read, and I just read 10 books a week. So what is a quarrela? And tell us about quivers. What is their purpose? Oh, I think that's a great question. So... Uh, when I wrote the first book, the book is it, it's a commentary on super spies, and it involves mm. a fictional character named Jove Brand, which was sort of going to be my version of a James Bond type character. And I I had this amateur detective character in my head, and I realized very quickly that I couldn't have him uh, running around with a gun trading gunfire with the bad guys and killing people. Um, One, I didn't think it fit the story. And two, I couldn't resolve to myself how this person would get away uh, with running around with a gun and shooting people and not be immediately arrested. Um, So I had to invent uh, a sort of a non-lethal gun. So I decided that this Joe Brand character would be a little bit based on Robin Hood. And he would sort of have this dart gun that did these different things. Mm. And that allowed me to sort of make up sort of a taser gun that would allow me to write scenes that had gunfire in them because we live in a world filled with guns, whether we like it or not. And mm. in, the, in the crime genre, we're going we're gonna to run into people that use guns. And then I thought, well, this is a way that feasibly I can have this character interact in this way, but not have him use a real gun. But I also, and this really feeds into the idea of what is a hero. I made a decision early on that Ken Allen was never going to kill anybody. That no matter how deep and dark the situation became, he was not the sort of person that had the capacity to take someone else's life, that it was Mm. part of his moral core that he just wasn't able to go there. And that sort of becomes the central crux of this book, is that he's dealing with very dangerous people, and the easy way out would be to take lives. And they're trying to kill him. And at one point in the book he says, what someone else is willing to do does not have any any effect on what I'm willing to do because of what it would cost him as a person. 
And because he won't take that step um, and end things in a definitive manner, it starts to affect people around him and, and, and ultimately costs him very dear friendships. Um, because the easy way out would be to kill all the bad guys. Well, there are people in the world that do things just for the sake of pleasing other people. Okay, I'll still kill them for you, no problem. You know, you're going to be on my side after, and then they throw them under the bus anyway. So people mm-hmm. have to sort of think for themselves and look, take a step back. So what happens when, this I like this character, Bill O'Wongs is in a sing, and how is he killed? And who are the foes stuntmen? That you put in this scene. Yeah. That's interesting. So I I wanted uh, the character in these scenes are based off sort of the Marvel Comics era. Now, these characters mm. were all made in the 60s. And the 60s was a time of, of social change, of the civil rights movement. And Bill O'Rongs um, is, he is meant to be sort of this um, anti-equality character. Um, he, supported, he is the arch enemy of uh, Flying Freeman, who is this black character who is sort of a, a black version of like a Captain America. He's a, mm-hmm. a patriotic character, but he's also a man of the people. Um, and Bill O'Rourke is his arch nemesis. He, he represents um, sort of a Civil War era attitude. And, and, you know, it's a play, of course, on Bill O'Wright. And there are other Bill O's out there that it might be sort of making fun of as well. I won't comment on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it is fun to make up these villains because they are such a, a key part of of these stories, uh, and I, I and we see very few villains in the book. Ken actually ends up having to go face to face with a lot of men dressed as his childhood heroes, um, and uh, so that was that was fun. I, we don't want to crowd our book, so I couldn't fill it with too many characters. So the scene you're talking about is very early in the book, so the first chapter. And Ken finds mm. himself on a movie set. He's used his contact, Ray Ford, to mm. be able to see one of these things that he loves be filmed. And uh, as it is with many detectives, he finds himself directly at the scene of the crime when what appears to be an accident um, kills this actor who is playing the villain, Bill O'Rong. And at first it appears that he's died at the hands of Ken's friend who is mm. in the superhero role. So we have Ray. I felt so bad for him. He sort of got really yeah. thrown under the bus. How come he got fired from two production companies? And what is yeah. the reason that they that they fired him? And I felt bad because I knew he wasn't guilty of anything, which is really sad. Yeah. Yeah, Ray... You know, and of course, Ray Ray Ford, the character, is a tribute. Uh, I named him after a Ray that is a, a special effects icon, Ray Harryhausen, who used to make these stop motion animated uh, films. And 
I wanted to uh, make a character who made movies the old-fashioned way. They weren't made in the computer. They were made practically in, in the scene. And he's an older man because he represents a dying way of making movies. Now most effects are done by hundreds of workers working at their computers. They're not clever tricks, camera tricks, and other things you can do to create it. Um, and because Ray is sort of the world's leading expert on this, everybody wants to hire him because he's mm. able to pull off these amazing effects. But like many geniuses, he's a hard person to deal with. It's his way or the highway. Mm. And the movie companies have had to put up with him because he, he in the end, makes movies that make millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, but once they have a chance to blame him rather than take the blame for themselves, when people start dying on their movie sets, they, they can either absorb that blame or they can say, no, it's this independent person over here that we hired that is not part of our company that we don't work for. In fact, we're going to sue him because it's his effects that ruin the production, and it's his effects that cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. So Ray feels like they've always wanted, the powers that be have always wanted a reason to come after him, and now they finally have it. Um, and uh, it's almost in the same way that we learn later that the creators of these heroes the men and women mm. who worked on comic books, they were also scapegoated and taken advantage of by these large corporations that bought their creations really for pennies on the dollar. Um, you know, when we think of Stan Lee, who made most of the Marvel characters uh, with artists like Jack Kirby uh, and Steve Ditko, um, we forget that Stan Lee doesn't own those characters that they were sold, you know, uh, many times over and eventually now they're owned by the Disney Corporation. And that Stan Lee, even though he appears in the movies, he's just sort of a figurehead. He's almost become, and of course he passed, um, may he rest in peace, he almost became a fictional character in his own right. Um, and... Uh, the book contains a Stanley tribute. I'll leave that to the reader, maybe to figure out who it might be. You know, it's funny that you should bring this up. On November 16th, you know, there's so many different panel shows that I do. You just never know what I'm going to do. I don't do the normal things. I don't ask people why they became a writer because I really don't care. I don't ask them how you chose this, why this. Said. I don't. I don't ask the normal things. This one bothered me. I did um, a broadcast with an FBI agent uh, two months ago, and Michael and I talked about gun violence, violence in the schools, and um, the the fact that safety in the schools. We talked about a lot of things, because that's my area. But this one on November Mm -hmm. 16th, which this would be interesting, based on what you're talking about, Charles Salzburg and Vincent Zandri, and I'm not sure if Dick Belsey is going to join. We're going to talk about violence in, on television programs and in mm-hmm. comics and in magazines. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. how, how kids 
exemplify, you know, they want to be like these superheroes, which is fine, mm-hmm. but sometimes they get nervous because they want to be like the villain, too. Sure. I mean, and it's all, a lot of it is based on portrayal. And it, it is interesting that yeah. in, the, in the modern superhero era, uh, in the Marvel era, all the Marvel movie characters do kill. Um, yeah. Captain America kills. Iron Man kills. And that mm-hmm. um, that was unthought unthought of um, in the even up to the 2000s. Um, actually, kind of in the times before 9/11, it was unthought of that a hero would kill. That was supposed to be something a villain did. And it's really handled very casually in modern movies, which is, uh, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but it it seems so jarring to me that they had made that decision. Um, But it's it's just taken for granted now that that that's sort of, that's where our heroes are, I guess. It bothers me because I see the outtakes for these movies, for Batman and Spider-Man and some other heroes I've never heard of, and it's like just the outtake is violent. And my husband loves these movies, not me. And I like, mm-hmm. you're teaching kids to be violent. And then when you have these attacks on schools by these teens, and they go like, who did they? Who are they exemplifying? That's even scarier. And you know, it's funny because my school's in a tough area in the Bronx, and they asked me because I'm a reading specialist if I would help out with the ELA. I said, number one, I would never walk into a school. I'm not afraid. Walk into a school with this pandemic, and number two, with what's going on, it's too scary. And the school where I taught, you don't want to walk around in that neighborhood. But I wouldn't worry. I don't think I'd have to worry, but still. So why is who is pretty? And why is Ken contacted by her? What company does she represent? I wasn't crazy about her. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so, uh, Preeti uh, is a fun character in the sense that, you know, when the movie studios get in trouble, she mm-hmm. is sort of the problem solver they send out. She's uh, very knowledgeable, very capable and a manipulative person as well who mm-hmm. is able to put out fires. That is her primary job. And she she's going to do it however she needs to do it. Um, and she recognizes early on that for whatever reason, Ken Allen appears to be involved in this and appears to sort of be one step ahead of her. So rather than oppose him, rather than try to uh, fight against him, she hires him and says, I will give you all the opportunities in the world to prove that your friend is innocent of all these charges um, because it, it also helps my goals. But she's also an antagonist because... She mm-hmm. also lets Ken know, if you cannot prove your friend is innocent, then I'm throwing him right under the bus. Because the bottom line is that the studio doesn't get in trouble. Um, and uh, I, I, I like characters with dimension, you know, and Preeti doesn't just exist to 
tell Ken what Ken needs to know or exist in the story. You do feel that she has her own goals going on and that she mm-hmm. is her own person. Um, and, of course, in a mystery, mystery readers are just so smart. They're so sharp. They know mysteries, and they're all detectives in their own right. And mm-hmm. it's important to make them wonder if someone like Preeti might actually be behind everything. Well, I won't tell you if I figured it out or not. And I have mm. the book in front of me. You know what's cool is the comic book page at the beginning and the one at the end. That's all I'll say about that. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, our like, designer. But you know, that's like the way it starts. So who is Colvin Mann and what is, he, what is his role? And why do you think that that he might be the one that committed the murders. But we're not going to say who committed them, but this is a, he's a mm. shady character. Yeah, you know, um, the book is about people who who had heroes in life and those heroes who let them down. And mm. uh, we learn that Ray Ford, the special effects expert, his productions begin to get sabotaged and people start dying. And uh, we learned that uh, several years ago, Ray took a young man under his wing named Colvin Mann. And uh, Colvin, physically, he is a very big, massive man. Um, And it has led to people thinking that he's not smart, that he must just be a big, dumb, strong guy. And, it, and no one would give him a chance, and everyone mm. underestimated him. But Ray Ford very quickly realized that he's very smart and he has a talent. And he took Colvin under his wing. Um, but as we learned, they had a falling out. And sometimes when we have a relationship with someone, who, someone who we see as a hero, or as a father figure, we hope that they would forgive our mistakes and we hope that they would live up to what they are in our head. But ultimately we find out that Ray Ford sort of failed Colvin, that he wasn't able to forgive his mistakes and that he banished him and ultimately banished someone who is very capable and is very bitter and is also a dangerous person. Um, mm. It's important when I make a villain character that even though they do bad things, we understand why they would do those things. And in a way, when we learn more about them, we kind of, our heart goes out to them a little bit. Maybe we wouldn't do those things, but we can kind of see where they're coming from. Well, sometimes you feel they're justified because they get stuck in the back. But, you know, what you said before about the guy being a good big guy, a lot of times people judge people by appearances, and they don't know mm-hmm. what's behind the face. I know, because I, I weigh 106, 7 pounds. I weigh 200 pounds at one point, and we won't say why. And people would look at me and go, like, she can't move, she can't run, she can't do this. Want to bet? I mean, I was always mm-hmm. overweight as a kid, 
but I could punch a ball better than any guy. So if I played punch ball or baseball, I hit a home run. I just skipped around the bases and got a home run. Didn't matter. <laughs> so appearances, you know, do change the way people perceive you, unfortunately. So here's another character. Who is Colby, and why is poor Ken in the crossfire, no matter what he does? I like Ken. Uh, who is – I'm sorry, I missed the name. Colby? Who is what – Oh, you know, why is Ken in the crossfire? Why is everybody trying to get him? Yeah, it's, you know, when I wrote my first book, mm. um, I kind of used an old, uh, an old cheat technique. You want your character to have investment in the story. You want them to have a tie into the story. So in my first book, what I did was I framed my character, Ken Allen, for murder. And the first mm-hmm. book is about this, this guy trying to clear his own name. And in the progress of it, he sort of decides that he, maybe this is his calling, that this mm-hmm. is his chance to sort of be a hero in real life, to become a detective and solve crimes. And in the second book, I couldn't just frame him for murder again. And I did want to have stakes in the story. So just to have him hired, just to have somebody to come into the office and say, I'd like to hire you for this, I wanted it to be more. And I thought this time I would put his friend Ray Ford in danger, and that would bring him closer to the crossfire. Mm. But um, at one point in the book, uh, he has to – we learn uh, in the first book, and we, it's alluded to in the second book, that Ken at one point was a celebrity personal trainer, that his mm. job used to be to go into the homes of the A-list and train them both um, uh, to, be, to have screen-ready appearance, meaning to have perfect bodies because mm. we expect our heroes to have perfect bodies. Um, the physical standards for our heroes are through the roof now. You have to be absolutely perfect. Um, and that he would know these celebrities. And at one point, he has to go talk to a, an actress who plays sort of a Wonder Woman-type character. Mm. Um, she's sort of a mix of Captain America and Wonder Woman. She's called the Patriot, and she's this character. And we learn that Leah Colby... Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, un, uh, un, an unfair standard in Hollywood is that uh, women actresses, they feel like they have a very limited window in which they get roles. That once you are around 40 years old, um, you quit becoming the lead, you start becoming the mother character, if you can even mm-hmm. get work at all. And Lydia Colby knows that the time is rapidly approaching that um, she's probably going to be shuffled aside. They're probably going to recast her part with a younger, cheaper actress and that, and that her career is coming to an end. And her life is barely starting. And it makes her a sort of, I don't want to say bitter, but she's a more hard-edged character. <laughs> and she doesn't... Mm-hmm. Uh, She's having to deal with this, and she starts to sort of take it out on Ken. 
who I think does a good job uh, navigating her and calming her down. She's one of my favorite characters in the book, actually, because um, we don't see too much of her, but she's just such a presence uh, right away. Now, before she's not based on anybody. Just but not based on anybody real. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, uh, before you forget. Before I forget, the ghost will yell at me if I forget. Um, Monday, the author of Orientation of Dylan Wooger. It's an interesting book. On the 18th, Sanctuary, the Emma Thornton series. On I have them in front of me so I don't forget the names. On the 22nd, one of the best books I read in a long time, Hooker Avenue, what happens when a young girl that's a hooker is sort of forgotten. Um, Jody Midland, this is really good. On the tw- uh, 24th, A Shadow of the Gypsy. Now, this is the biggie people. On the 25th, I uh, once again, I am totally thrilled. Captive and The Face to Die For, Irish Johansson. Yes. Mm, wow. Question. Yes. Yes, she only interviews with Guess Who because Guess Who doesn't ask the questions that she doesn't want to answer. What I do is I send her the questions like everybody else, and then I tell the publicist, tell her to circle the ones she wants to answer, and the ones that she doesn't, I'll fix up. But she wants two hours, <laughs> which is really oh, good. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, she's really. I did. I interviewed Tess two weeks ago, too. Tess Garrison, uh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Rizolian Isles book, Listen to Me. And I've got David yep. Putnam, and I've got Philip Margolin in November. He booked this show um, two months ago when I interviewed him because he said, You have to get the first one every time I get a new book. So I am thrilled. When? That sort of takes us through August. There's a few more. So. Why is Ken hired? What is he hired to do for Duke Quince and why? Yeah, so uh, to go back real quick, we'll talk about them mm-hmm. in a moment. Um, you know, I'm a newer author, and when I first came into the mystery community, um, I was very fortunate uh, to be mentored by a wonderful author named Gigi Pandian. Um, and she sort of brought me into the community, and I was so wonderfully surprised that crime writers, uh, thriller and mystery writers, they're just so warm and lovely, and they just welcome you right in, and they're a delight to deal with. Um, You're always worried that you're going to meet these authors that you've idolized reading, and they're going to be terrible, and it has never happened. All thriller and mystery writers are wonderful people. It's very nice. It was a nice experience. Um, the people that I've met. So I think that's great. Um, so when we talk about the, the big companies in this, in this book, there are two of them. There's, uh, there's Duquesne, and then there is uh, this other company that is an overseas company that's, uh, that's owned. It's a big uh, conglomerate. And they're supposed to be analogs for the modern companies that own these properties. Warner Brothers owns all the DC Comics characters, Superman and Batman. And Disney owns all the Marvel characters. And it was important that these companies exist in the book because the companies that own these characters don't love them. 
they see them as economic opportunities and as dollar signs. And all the calculations and what they do comes down to that. And the book is really about trying to find justice for those creators that were cheated. I, I don't know if you're familiar, but, you know, the, uh, the men who created Superman um, sold the property for a, a, a pitiful small amount of money. Um, and many of, the, of these creators that did create these influential characters, they, they died in poverty. Um, mm. While their characters uh, make billions of dollars while they have movies and video games and action figures, and these men and women don't see a penny of it um, because they were work for hire. Um, and so it was important to have these, these corporations here um, and to create characters that actually do love not only these characters, but, but love the people that created them and will do anything mm. for those people up to and including kill. I'll tell you, George Reeves was great. My mother wouldn't let me watch it. I snuck a couple of times to see because mm-hmm. Superman was, you know, Superman was different back then. And then they had mm-hmm. somebody else that took over, and it just wasn't the same. So I said, forget that. Then I, have, I, I was told what to read. My mother had a list of what I was allowed to get in the library. And actually back, you know, I don't know about, about whatever, but basically libraries, I got whatever I wanted. I could get 20 mm-hmm. books out where more people were told you could only take three or four because they didn't want all the bestsellers out. They didn't care. So who mm-hmm. oversees Tachi Productions, and how did they come into regarding the murders? And how come the people that worked at the crew were afraid that they were going to get hurt? Yeah, so I decided when I made Tachi Productions, you know, Tachi Productions is sort of a – fictional version of the Sony Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sony, they made the X-Men movies and the Spider-Man movies. And the fans of comic book characters kind of feel like Sony doesn't understand the characters and does not love them. Mm-hmm. And it shows. And I wanted to create a character who has clawed his way up the corporate ladder who really and truly does love his creations and really wants to do right by the people that created them. And that was the source of the Javier Cardiel character. Um, When Ken comes into Tachi and starts asking questions, he finds this other person that he feels a kinship with, um, someone who... Uh, has a deep love for the characters and the people behind it, and it's just doing their best um, to uh, to be uh, a force for good inside what is ultimately a, not a very good corporation. Um, and uh, as an aside, uh, you know, Javier is is based on uh, a close childhood friend of mine who gave me my first comic books, and I, mm. uh, I had to put them in. I always get permission, uh, by the way, before yeah, I homage. I, you, I always ask them if it's okay, 
and then I always make sure that the names aren't very similar um, before I <laughs> before I tribute <laughs> uh, my friends. But we're all products of all the people that we've known and who have guided us into these things. And it's impossible to write a story and not uh, dip into yourself a little bit, just a little bit. Well, I wrote, my last book is called Sisters, Two Sisters from the Bronx, and there are stories I grew up with my sister in the South Bronx. And unfortunately, she never got to read it. She read mm. the very first one that I wrote, my, who na- my name is Bertha, when my sister said to me, you weigh 200 pounds, why don't you do something worthwhile with your time? I go, you're going to be sorry because I'm going to write about you because you're horrible. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I got even with her. But she had actually edited the book. And then my uh, mom, Lewis, my husband's mother, who I miss terribly, was my other editor. And then I wrote, like, two more, but my sister never got to read this one. And it's all about growing up in the South Bronx together. And it's too bad she didn't see it because I think she would really be thrilled that I use her as my main character. Yeah. Um, I'm Bertha. She's t- yeah, my nephew, I was 200 pounds, and my nephew called me Bertha because I didn't smile. My grandmother never passed. Well, that was Bertha. And Tilly was my spoiled aunt. Right? That was my sister. So, yeah, sometimes you <laughs> just have to use the people that you know. And mm-hmm. as far as other characters, my cousins, I just tell them, too bad you're in there. I'm not asking you permission. Too bad. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, it could be horrible. Now, this is this is the cool part where I change some of the type of questions. Ken is a series character, right? So he's going to be coming back again, I hope? Yeah. So um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I love series characters, especially as a lover of detective stories. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have to admit that there is a, there's a, I, there's a lineage when it comes to mystery writers and I I yeah. owe a lot to uh, Robert B. Parker. Um, mm-hmm. I love Robert B. Parker's work with the Spencer character, and I love this continuing character that built a community, and uh, I really wanted to do that. And I, I was really lucky. The first book uh, did well, and we, we, we wrote this one, the superhero book. So I just... It's now Publishers Marketplace official as of yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. I just signed the contract to write the third book in the Ken Allen series, uh, which is going to be titled King Me. And mm-hmm. we're moving from Super Spies, and I wrote a superhero book. And this book is going to be about a long-running fantasy television show, which is oh, entering nice. its final season when its creator is murdered and the notebook where all his secret twists and endings is stolen and disappears. So the creator's dead and his notebook is taken and nobody knows how the show ends. That's uh, interesting. You know, you're very lucky because it's so hard to get signed with a publisher. mm. Are you going to do CamCat again? The same one? Yeah, this is through CamCat. Um, they get the first look at the series. Um, and I'm, I am working on other things. But as you know, I mean, it, you write as well. Um, even writing one book a year um, while trying to manage the other things in your life is, is, mm-hmm. such, is such a time sink. Um, and, but for the last, uh, last few years, I've been working on two or three projects at once. 
and they're all starting to come to fruition, which is really nice. But nothing official I can say yet. I'm lucky if I can figure out how to write a paragraph in a book. Um, my my books are horror. I write from the oh, point yeah? when my sister died. I went to the, um, the cemetery, and I looked at her stone, mm. and I said, could you tell me what happened that day when you had a heart attack? I said, wouldn't it be nice if she could speak out? They don't know I wrote that story. In Faces Behind mm. the Stones, five stories are real, but they're told from the point of view of the dead person behind the stone. Either they got wronged or they did something wrong. Um, the last mm. one I wrote, Population Zero, nobody understood. I wrote nine nine places, like a, a world without sun, world that's dark, ice, blah, 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 and I figured I'd invite a dead person to come back and experience it, telling the world, why don't you stop being nicer in this one, because you never know, might not exist. They didn't get it. So, the fact that you have all this imagination is great. And did you ever go to the Thriller Fest to meet the mystery mystery writers? Because I know I more. did. Um, I went in 2017. Uh, actually, I went to Thriller Fest in 2017 uh, with the manuscript of the first Ken Allen book to mm. um, pitch the book to agents. And um, I had I knew some other authors at the time, and I, I made uh, a lot of great connections. I think Thriller Fest is a wonderful convention, actually. Um, I, was, I remember being very delightfully surprised that you could mm-hmm. walk up to some of the biggest writers in mystery and thriller, and they're just normal, nice people that will have a conversation with you. No problem. Uh, and uh, that was in 2017, and the next year, um, I got into a program called Pitch Wars, which mm-hmm. was a program where you uh, you apply, and uh, if you're lucky, uh, you're chosen by a mentor. And that's how I met Gigi Pandian. And lucky. through Pitch yeah, I, I really was. Um, you know, the thing about a contest like that, that that it's important for people to understand is the best writer isn't who wins the contest. Mm-hmm. What The reason I was chosen by Gigi is because she, I had all the right problems that she knew how to fix with my writing. She mm-hmm. saw a clear path and how she could help me reach the next level. I wasn't the best writer. I was just the one that she felt she could help the most. And, and she did. I was 90% of the way there, and under her guidance, I got 100% of the way there. Um, and out of Pitch Wars, I signed with the wonderful uh, Lucien Diver of the Night Agency, and I'm so, so fortunate uh, to have an agent like her in my corner. Um, she's so experienced. She's so knowledgeable in all genres. And when it comes to that especially for a, a, someone, a new writer, a new, mm. newly signed writer, you have to be able to trust people's expertise. Because I don't know. There's so much I don't know. I don't even know what I don't know. Um, and I'm so lucky to have her guidance. And, um, and it's, it's really paid off. Um, it's really tough as a writer to decide what advice to listen to and what advice not to listen to. 
Um, and that's a really tough road to navigate. Um, and also what fights to, what, when to, what fights to have and what things to let go. Um, you know, you're, you're right. when you deal with, when I wrote, yeah. uh, when I wrote population zero and some of the other ones, I tried to get, you know, to reach out. Well, I met Vincent Sandry. He's my pal. Uh, Lee Matthew mm-hmm. Goldberg. I, I, I actually was brave, and I went up to um, Lincoln Child, Douglas Preston and Lincoln mm-hmm. Child, and they actually did they did a couple of interviews with me because I said, hey, you want to come on my radio show? Um, I think mm-hmm. the scariest person was R.L. Stein. I met him, too. I met everybody. Really? And I, uh, yes, I, I did. I, I thought I have a picture with Stein him is on, wonderful. My, on my phone. Uh, he's great. He was I scary, thought, though. It is. It he's is very nice, but he scared, but... scared the daylights out of me. And then uh, <laughs> John Land is my pal, and Charles Salzberg is my pal, and Dick Belsky is my pal. So when I had it, when I needed advice as to how to fix my last book, mm-hmm. Lee Matthew Goldberg gave me. He read it, and Vincent gave mm-hmm. me an accolade for it because, you know, I needed somebody to tell me what I did wrong. And the publishing mm-hmm. company, I won't say which one it was, was an independent company. I said, I know mm-hmm. this is okay, but I know that the plot line isn't strong enough. I know that I need mm-hmm. to make the world a little bit darker. And all they said was, you know, cross out that sentence, what's this? And I said, well, what should I add? Nothing. And mm-hmm. It was a lot of money. The book came out okay, but it wasn't great. So you're mm-hmm. going to write another one. And I have about a thousand more questions that we can't go to because we have about three minutes. Um, I never watched the clock. Yeah. So, sure. what happens to Ray? Ne- what happens to ne- Ray next? And what about Ken? And they, they're going to Ray. Ken's going to be in the next one, right? For sure. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, who else are you, who I else love, are you bringing back? I love. Um, I love the old style of of building a mystery series with this cast that reoccurs. Yeah. I know that the modern trend. You know, when Lee Child came along, his Jack Reacher character was counterculture. It was a character that had no ties, no possessions, and no cast. That he was just uh, a stranger in a new situation. Unfortunately, I feel like he's sort of become the convention. And I wanted to get back to a traditional mystery where we see people reappear time and time again. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Obviously, Ava Stern uh, shows up in the books because she is the uh, police officer. She's the state special investigator who is sort of assigned to Ken. Whenever his name comes up, unfortunately for her, she is sent to deal with him. So we're going to see Ava again. She's so much fun to write. Um, She's actually the hard-boiled noir character in the book. You know, Ken isn't really that tough, that tough. Ava is the tough, serious one who who gets it done. Uh, she's a lot of fun. Um, we will see Ray again in the future. Uh, we do see Elaine again, who's Ray's daughter. Oh, good. Uh, she goes through such a journey in the book. Um, and the Elaine character, you know, I brought in a, um, a reader, uh, a wheelchair user uh, reader, to vet the Elaine character for me because it was so important that I do mm. Elaine right and get her pr- perspective right. I was very concerned about that character, but I, I am happy uh, with that. So we do see Elaine again. 
Um, you know, I love Dean uh, Calabria, you know, Ken's mm-hmm. uh, biological son. Uh, Ken doesn't raise Dean. It's hard not to want to bring him back. But this one is kind of turning into an Agatha Christie-style mystery. Oh, I nice. think I might write it all. I think I'm going to write it all one location with this big television cast kind of trapped in this hotel for the weekend. Um, I think it'll be a fun challenge because the first two books are so like an action movie. They, they move around and there are big action set pieces. And I think it would be fun to try to restrict myself a little bit. Um, John Land wrote one be- like that. With mm-hmm. a, uh, when he was writing Murder, she wrote, unfortunately, they were stupid enough to take the series away from him because he was great, but he did mm. write something like that. And how does the main character get stuck because there's no police there? And Jessica yep. Fletcher had to solve it. And it's good. That That is a cool idea. Really cool idea. Yeah, that John Land is a firecracker, isn't he? John John is great, and he's coming on November 10th yeah. with another book that he wrote with uh, Heather Graham. But I told him he's got to write my uh, Caitlin Strong series because I love Caitlin Strong, and I, I love everything mm-hmm. he writes, and he's great with panels. So who knows? So where else? Can, by the way, I just have to tell you that Gina, who is Partners in Crime, uh, she just emailed me to tell you that she loved your first book. Absolutely, and oh, she's great. going to read this one. And she's going to read this one. You know, during the yeah. um, interviews, I always email them and go, "This is boring. This is great. You're going to love this. Read this one." They usually take my advice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So this book is going uh, where all my books go. Uh, this is hilarious. My dermatologist, who I very rarely see, ever so often mm-hmm. calls me and says, "Would you bring me a pile of books? My wife needs reading material." So this is going into mm-hmm. Mrs. Mermelstein. And yeah, he, he loves me. As a matter of fact, it's Wonderful. funny because he called me. Yeah, he wanted something similar to this, and then he wanted Daniel Silva, uh, Daniel Silva's book, which I have for him. And he said, "I can't come into the office without books." So, this well, if you ever, with all uh, of it. if you find time in your busy schedule for the first one, I would be happy to send you the first book. Send it, send it anyway, because I'll make. You know, it's really weird that you should say that because book mail has not been very helpful. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that I haven't. About twenty, seriously, twenty publicists said, "Did you get the book?" And then go, "No, I got." I was excited. I got D.P. Lyle's new one, Tallyman, yesterday, mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. almost done with it. I read a. If I don't read a whole book in a day or two, then you're in trouble. If it takes me more than a day and a half to read your book, you, I'm not going to finish it. I'm serious because I read very I call fast. My and books, I, and uh, I call my books airplane books. I think you should – my books right. are, are light and they're fast and you can knock them out during a flight. Well, I knocked this off in an hour and a half because I couldn't put it down, which gave me oh, a lot strength, so that's a, comp- that's a compliment. So where can everybody get all of your books? And, yeah, feel free to send me – are you going to do another? Oh, I have to ask this, Crystal. Yell at me if I know they won't. Uh, are you going to do mm. another tour with Partners in Crime? Because I've done my tours with them too. They're the best. I think they're great. Um, I think they're sort of becoming um, the go-to for crime writers. And yeah, they are. Writers. I think. I think they're they they do a tremendous job. Um, I think they're sort of a staple of the industry. Everyone knows. Uh, everyone knows who they are. Yeah. I'm going to post you 10 stars in a few minutes on my phone. I find that when I post the reviews on my phone, they go faster than the stupid computer. That 
Mm-hmm. You, you, mm-hmm. you know, your review is in, is in my notepad because my computer has a habit of making them disappear. No, I'm serious. Ah. They actually have yeah. a habit of making my, my reviews disappear if they don't. I don't know why. And I always pick the ones with the best book. So, no, I'm going to post uh, it. <laughs> I live I, I in mortal terror of losing anything I write. I back up everything I write on flash so drive I. and mail it to myself. Ugh. I, I know that I've done it before, but you always wonder if you can do it again. <laughs> I do. I have like seven copies of, of each one, and for some reason, my com- my computer, I'm typing, and all of a sudden it disappears, and it says, do you want to save this? I go, no. That's when the, the mm-hmm. thing comes back. So where can everybody mm-hmm. find out about you and, and your books? And I can't wait to – I'll get the first one. I'll read it. Great. Uh, I'll get it to you, no problem. Um, so you can just go to my website, jcrawford.net. Um, and uh, I'm also on uh, most of the platforms, but Twitter is sort of my main platform because I came out mm-hmm. of the Pitch Wars program. And that is a Pitch Wars uh, – Twitter and Pitch Wars, though Pitch Wars is retired now – go hand in hand. Um, and you can always look me up there. I am Joseph of Orb just about everywhere. Unfortunately, I took that name years ago and I am forced to stick with it now. So I'm Joseph of Orb on Twitter and Instagram and even uh, the dreaded TikTok, though I'm a shy person. And I, <laughs> I it seems you strange. Never know it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I don't like appearing on camera if I can help it, um, but uh, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I'm also a modest person, and I don't love talking about myself, but I know you have to. Um, so I do I do my best there, too. No, I don't let people take a picture of me, although I was very upset on Saturday. I, I have my hair is blonde with green, blue, purple, and red, and pink highlights. No, I'm serious. They're okay. Like, for real. It's different. And I walked into the bakery, and this guy came over to me. I know him, and he said, oh, and he took a picture of me. I had a fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mind if you, you do that, but just, like, ask. I don't like – I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I look in the mirror, and I go, like, who I, is that? I know. I know. And they said I, I look really understand. good. I mean, yeah, I don't like yeah. when people take pictures of me because it's whatever. But um, – and the, after I had my streaks done, I, I highlights done, I texted my nieces to find out if that were proved. Because they think I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, thank you so very much. This has been fun. This actually brightened my day, and I needed something to oh, brighten wonderful. my day. But you uh, send me the book, and I'll do my very best to give it another review. Um, I'm going to send Gina the link to the show because they like to give it to the author, and I will post mm-hmm. my review, uh, and I will post it on Amazon with 17 stars. Because I don't, you know, if a book is in four and a half to five stars, I won't review it. I won't even yeah. find a review on Just Reviews. So you can find me yeah. on Just Reviews, people. And if I have a typo, blame it on my computer. Don't blame it on me. So thank you right. so much. Everybody, do an act of kindness because we could use some kindness. Everybody have a great day and bye. Bye-bye.